Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning, I listeners. You're listening to the IRR show. It is Tuesday at 9 a.m. And you always know that means your favorite, favorite duo from the Institute of Race Relations is going to be on your radio waves. Good morning to you. And Sara, good morning to you on this uh, rather chilly Tuesday morning. Uh, yes, hi, Sita. And it looks like it's going to get chillier, uh, judging by the dreadful weather that's about to hit the Cape. So <laughs> we'll have to keep it warm for the next hour for everyone. Well, it looks like it's going to be even chillier than that, judging by the effects <laughs> of the lockdown economically that's now beginning to bite. So we're going to have a conversation as we always do on the show. We'll begin by looking at the news week that was. Uh, what made headlines? What got you talking? Uh, or, you know, what sparked up the conversations? What made the big news items for the week? We'll start the show by having that conversation. And then um, after the 9.20 break, we'll have a very special guest on with us. We'll have um, Mr. Um, uh, Mark Oppenheimer, or I should say Advocate Mark Oppenheimer. Very interesting conversation that we had with him. Um, so you can look forward to that. Um, but, Sarah, I, I, I think we, we need to take our first break. Um, it'll help us also get rid of a few gremlins uh, okay. this morning. And when we come back, we'll pick up the conversation around what exactly made the news interesting this past week. IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to the IRR show. My name is Big Daddy Liberty in studio, of course, with Sarah Gone, virtual studio, I must add, um, for still staying at home. Um, are you staying at home, by the way, dear listener? Uh, are you back at work? It'll be interesting to find out. Um, what that is, um, Sarah. Very interesting week, news-wise. Um, some some weird places to begin with. Um, maybe just for us to gloss over. But the schools. Uh, the minister finally yeah. appears in front of the nation and says, uh, "Yeah, kids, back to school." Um, yeah. Ninety-five percent, she says, of schools in the country are mm-hmm. ready to go back. What do you make of that? Well, I. Th- I think she had, let's put it this way, after saying everyone would go back to school on the 1st of June and then cancelling it on the 1st of June and then saying it would be the 8th of June, they had to open the schools on the 8th of June. Um, Otherwise, what little reputation she has left would be shot to hell. Um, You know, it's it's, the the, the COVID thing is is so much an unknown. We are our our science on it is improving. The science still generally says that 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 children are not vectors of the disease, and they don't suffer or barely suffer from the disease. So, to my view, yes, the Department of Education must provide assistance uh, to take protective measures, but it's actually incumbent also on the adults in the schools to take the measures they need to stay safe. And I don't think it's it's impossible. It can be done. And we have to accept that it's one way or another, this lockdown is going further and further away, and we have to deal with it that way. No, I, I agree. Um, I think it has been, you see, uh, and you're now really picking this up as we begin to relax, so to speak, um, the regulations, not only here in South Africa, but worldwide, that the data that's now beginning to come out is actually painting rather a very crystal clear picture 
as to what the real dangers of uh, the COVID-19 is. In fact, if I were to bring up another news item which is linked to this that mm-hmm. came out last week, was the Western Cape government basically shifting mm-hmm. its strategy to now only testing people who mm-hmm. are basically 55 years and above, mm-hmm. um, and even then people with comorbidities. I think a mm-hmm. recognition, tacit recognition that, you know, the hysteria um, that we subjected the nation to um, may have been a, a, little, a little misplaced, mm-hmm. even as the data had come in at that point. Mm-hmm. Just that it might be best to, to focus resources on actual risk groups, like, like serious risk groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's actually quite wise. And if that if that's the sort of approach uh, that government wants to now take, which is data-driven, evidence-driven, and right. experience-driven, then absolutely, I think that bodes well for most South Africans who actually are rightly worried about yeah. COVID. No, no, absolutely. The problem is twofold. Um, the one is the fact that if you just test randomly, the, the, the testing figures against the, how many people have the virus, how many people means nothing. Because you, 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 you know, you're not comparing it against anything. And then you have the second problem and that is a scarcity of resources. And in that situation, which is our situation writ large, you say, right, we have to, the, the people are not at risk are not at risk. We can't cover everybody. Let's cover those that really are at risk and take action to minimize the risk or to, or to um, give the necessary health care. I think the problem for the Western Cape is that it's the, it, it's the province that's been ahead of how this um, pandemic has been dealt with. And the rest of the country is to largely coming up from behind, and it's, it's, it's very sporadic. It's common sense. You, you you make the most of what you've got for the people who need it most. Absolutely. Um, speaking about something that's needed it most, or at least in this case, not needed most, <laughs> President's remarks um, over this past week or weekend, I should say, yeah. um, essentially race-baiting in nature and divisive in how they characterize South Africans um, of various groups. Do you want to just chime in, Sarah? Yeah, um, I'll tell you what's, what's uh, interesting about this. It was the speech that the uh, president gave to launch the anti-racism campaign that that has happened as a consequence of George, Flo- George Floyd's death in America. Um, and it, it was a, a very strange, partly because it actually got... Very little real attention, and I've had trouble finding the uh, a written version of it. So I sort of had to sit and listen to it because I'm going to write an article about it. But it was a meandering speech, and it was it it it, it, it in part said the right thing, but it was so emphatically anti-European. It displayed not just the bias, um, not unjustified in terms of slavery, but a lack of a lack of historical knowledge about slavery, about uh, bigotry, about the effects of, of, of racism, as if the, the only racism that exists that matters is the one we know about, and that's the racism that came out of uh, European colonialism. And so, so that, that, that was, uh, you know, it, it, it was almost like a sort of a cheap shot, but, but more than that, he said, he said things like, um, entitlement Referring to the Europeans enabled apartheid, um, as they as, as, and it, they achieved apartheid. Apartheid remained, and race remains remains the defining feature of many societies. South Africa is defined by racial inequality. Even after six, 26 years, the economy is still in the hands of the few. 
predominantly white people, while the poor and unemployed are overwhelmingly black. Now, the, 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 what's interesting about that is, one, is it, it actually shows a bitterness on his part. But I suspect it's a bitterness caused by the fact that moving out of apartheid, um, the ANC government made distinct advances but as soon as the which and it was not uh, without its problems, but as soon as the Mbeki era ended, and the the socialist um, factions put um, Zuma into power, it disintegrated. And what runs through this this uh, piece is no sense of taking responsibility. In somehow, in other words, if if the ANC hasn't done the right thing, it is our fault. Sorry, my fault. Uh, being a white person, and it's um, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting speech because I've long been a critic of 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 uh, the president, and I, the, essentially the article is saying my article now is going to really say the real Cyril has now stood up. Um, very well, worrying. What I find particularly concerning um, about it is that, and what I was trying to get at is, is that it was race baiting in nature. It basically paints mm. it a picture that only one group of of uh, South Africans, especially the section where he spoke about uh, somehow the uh, white people's predisposition to still <laughs> saying racist things. Um, yeah. if I directly, I think he made mention of the fact that, you know, this thing of white people still um, characterizing and building caricatures, he says, mm, of mm. black people being akin to animals, mm. um, et cetera, et cetera. He made that seem as if it is a widespread and every white person he speaks to does that kind of thing. Thus, again, entrenching the idea that racism is a is something that is akin to one group versus the other. This is a classical, critical theory type stuff, the stuff that is taught to universities, which basically creates these hierarchies of um, various interest groups in society, whether that, that, whether that group excuse me, is based on race or gender or sexuality basically creates mm. uh, segmented groups, which are then hier- places in the hierarchy of the most oppressed to the least oppressed mm. slash those who do the oppressing over others. Yeah. Um, to hear your president basically echo that critical race theory, that wokeness, I think it's broadly called, is actually really concerning because it begs the question, how does he really view South Africans? Does he view us as individuals, as families, no. um, or does he view us as various interest groups and various races in particular, um, which ought to be chastised in one form or the other, or basically perpetually seen as a victim in the other. Um, that is a very concerning turn to have your president take. I mean, it's one thing to have the academics um, and, and the media who basically lap the stuff up, um, you know, sort of push these talking points quite often, but to hear mm-hmm. people who actually hold institutional power by way of the state echo these words, basically should bode very ominous, not only just to white South Africans, this is not a defense of white South Africans, mm. but rather a defense of South Africans who have been sold the idea that we're building a non-racial nation. So mm. it kind of smacks against that to have a president then speak in the way in which he did. Sorry, we're running out of time. We need to take our break. Okay. Um, but do, do you have a final point? Maybe. Just no, I just wanted to say uh, the irony of saying that white people as a whole have a proclivity to make those uh, racist memes is an incredibly racist statement. I mean, it's it's basically attributing the actions of, of one to the whole in the same way he'd accuse a single white of attributing one to the whole of, of the black population. So it, it's it's unbelievably racist. Absolutely. And it, I think it's something we'll be watching, especially as um, 
this line of thinking, as I was making mention, isn't just relegated to the ANC. It, it, it's happening around the world, and it's now even beginning to filter into your schools. But let's pick this conversation up um, after our interview. After the break, we have advocate um, Mark Oppenheimer as we look at some of the court cases that have been fought over this uh, lockdown period as people sort of fight back um, against the overreach of the state. We'll have Mark talk to us about that after the short break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. And welcome back to the IRR show, the show that brings you all your news analysis and opinion through the lens of classical liberalism. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that uh, that break. Usually you, you almost hear me have a very staggered voice because I always forget that um, Sarah has to do an, an ad um, at the moment you come back. Uh, that being said, uh, our guest is with us. He's joining us, uh, Mr. Mark Oppenheimer. A, an attorney at law, uh, excuse me, an advocate. I'll, I'll let him actually clarify which is which. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> such a novice on these issues. Uh, that being said, uh, Mark, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so um, I'm an advocate, which um, we're different from attorneys in that we are independent. Um, we have a thing called the cab rank rule, um, which means that um, we cannot say no to any case in which we're asked to appear. So we kind of have this unique role to play in society. Um, uh, the British have barristers, um, which perform a similar function, and we, uh, you know, wear funny outfits, robes from the 1700s, um, bibs, um, no wigs, but you know, I've got the hair that uh, makes people think I wear a wig, and we stand up in court and, and argue on behalf of our clients. Hey man, the um, things are going with, with this no haircut level three situation. Maybe them wigs are going to come in handy soon enough. Yes, clearly um, the uh, profession of the advocate harks back to uh, a distinctly colonial era, shall we say? Um, Mark, just to ask you first, um, you're an advocate. You your areas of of interest or speciality are issues of free speech, constitutionality, municipal law. Um, and commercial law. What what particularly gets you excited legally uh, in the current climate? Well, I mean, it's been a, a really interesting time for the law, um, and I think civil society has played this this huge role in checking the power of the state, and I think that is absolutely vital to do. You know, we're in a time where you've got this sort of um, strong power of the executive to produce um, regulations. Uh, which have changed our landscape dramatically. And not all of those regulations have been constitutional and not all of them have been um, rational. And so I've been involved in a few cases um, to, to temper some of that state power, um, and we've been very successful. So uh, the first set was for Dear South Africa, mm-hmm. and we challenged the, you know, a couple of things that, that struck us as as uh, you know, very bad for the economy and very bad for human flourishing. So the first being um, Ibrahim Patel's ban on e-retail. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, his justification for banning e-retail was that if brick-and-mortar stores were going to be closed down, then it would be unfair to allow people to sell goods online. Um, now, that is not a rational mm-hmm. um, decision because, you know, your regulations are entitled to address the disaster of COVID. Um mm-hmm which means they must be aimed at stopping the spread. Um, you know, fairness in a market is totally different. And the other thing that it, it failed to take into account is that people are agile. Um, they mm. can move their businesses online. So they don't, they don't just have to have their brick and mortar store. So we, um, we challenged that and we're successful on that and the e-retail ban was dropped. Um, and I think that was a wonderful way for people to 
you know, start looking after their livelihoods and, and get back to work and find a way to have an income. So that was our first success. The other one was on this narrow exercise window. Um, oh, right. So this idea that you know, people should only be allowed outdoors between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. And, you know, the difficulty with that is that you then channel everyone together, um, again, undermining the purpose. Um, and, you know, we also are aware of the fact that the virus is much less likely to spread um, outdoors. Um, and so our challenge there was to say, you know, allow people to exercise during daylight hours and allow them to do whatever form of exercise they want. So the original regulation said that it would be limited to uh, cycling, running, and walking. And so you had people being arrested for performing other forms of exercise, um, you know, which you know, just were, was rather um, disgraceful. So, again, something we were victorious on. And I think, you know, it's it's important for people to be free to move, you know, to, mm-hmm. you know, not just on a physical level, but I think on a mental level, you know, being able to escape your house is quite important, especially when you're not posing a risk to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are two of the things that I did for. Um, the other more recent one, um, which which I think was really, really important, was the government regulations um, gave the state the power to forcibly quarantine people mm. um, against their will, even if they were able to self-isolate. Um, and so I ran a case for AfriForum um, where we challenged this and were again successful. Um, and you had you know, pretty strong indications from the state that they intended on doing this on a mass scale. So you had the Premier of Brazil, Natal, saying that self-isolation is over um, and we will um, forcibly quarantine anyone that tests positive. Um, now, we had a couple of concerns with this. The one is, you know, the whole purpose to flatten the curve is that you're trying to keep the amount of medical resources um, available for a public that are going to get increasingly sick. Um, and if you then take away those resources by putting people who are, you know, have their own facilities to, to self-isolate, um, there's only a limited pool of hospital beds available. So you're depriving those that will actually need them. You know, those that are poor and vulnerable that are unable to self-isolate, you could do with a bed. You know, you're not taking that away from them. So we said that's irrational. The other one is that it wasn't just people who are known to have COVID, but people who are suspected of having COVID. So you could then take those people, put them into a government quarantine camp against their will, and there's a possibility that they would then themselves get it um, without having had it before because you're putting them with people who have COVID. Uh, and the third problem is that testing is such an important part of this process that mm-hmm. you can kind of get a sense of how big the problem is. And I think if you tell people, listen, if you test positive, we're going to stick you in a, in a quarantine camp, people will refuse to get tested. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a completely irrational measure. Um, and so we, we went to court and we got a judgment um, a few days ago uh, confirming um, our position on that, which is that you know, it's it's outside of the state's powers, and that's, that that will no longer no longer happen. So yeah, we've had a few really good victories during this time that stand up for you know civil liberties. Isn't isn't the uh, I mean, impression I get from what you say, uh, from my my knowledge and experience of the regulations, is it's all it's almost as if the government has said. <gasps> Right, we we can we can issue these regulations. We can control people's lives. We can we have a a, a level of, of of a grip on on people that we wouldn't normally have. Here comes the NDR is and, and we're on track. Let let's get going. It, it it just seems that the the regulations have been so. I mean, in in in, in, in any other circumstances, which, which one would say stupid, but I think it's really a case, and Patel is perhaps the best example of 
not appearing to understand the absolute basics of how an economy works. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, you know, and I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, government tried to do in the beginning was this drawing that distinction between essential work and non-essential work without realizing that the economy is interconnected, you know, um, that essential workers rely on people that would have been deemed non-essential to get their job done. Um, and, and, you know, when you have these economic consequences, not, the economy is not an abstract thing. You know, the economy boils down to people being able to go to work and put food on the table to make sure that their kids don't starve to death. Um, and, you know, when you shut that down, you have an impact on people's lives. Um, you know, and if you sort of look at some of the research that's come out, you know, that the, you know, that the lockdown may have you know, very, very severe health consequences, you know, um, cutting down people's life expectancy, you know, um, and and I think government wasn't taking that into account at all. Um, and I think it's civil society, you know, pushing back against that um, to say, hold on a second, you know, you need to kind of, you know, act in a way that is that is reasonable and proportionate. Um, and, and I think, and I say civil society because it certainly hasn't been big business. Mm. Uh, business has been enormously quiet during this time. You know, if you think about, you know, business like Take A Lot, um, mm. that should have been chomping at the bits to fight Patel on e-retail. You know, very quiet. They didn't run litigation. Mm. This was done by Dear South Africa, which is, which has 700,000 ordinary South Africans, um, supporting it. You know, um, and, you know, I think, and the IR has obviously played a, you know, an enormous role in getting its ideas out there and, you know, influencing the right people to sort of make decisions that are rational and lawful. Uh, can I pick up from there? Um, could you tell us more about Dear South Africa? Because, as I understand it, um, it's it's a platform you've been uh, considerably involved with. Yes. So, I mean, DSA really is a it's an incredible initiative because basically what it does is it provides people with a platform um, to look at how legislation is formulated. So, one of the things that I was involved in um, was um, this question as to whether the um, our constitution ought to be changed to allow for expropriation of our compensation. And um, I, I produced a video of, um, for Dear South Africa on that question, um, pointing out how utterly disastrous it would be for us to allow for expropriation of our compensation. And this is in a pre-COVID world. You mm. know, um, I mean, all you have to do is you know, uh, look at other countries um, that have tried it, like Zimbabwe or Venezuela, to see the you know, utter devastation that it wrecks on, on, on human lives. Um, and I think now, um, post-COVID, you know, uh, it would be catastrophic to do that. You know, I mean, now we, we have an economy that's going to be severely hobbled, and we need to have as many pro-growth policies as possible. Um, and if you interfere with property rights, you know, there's there's no incentive for anyone to ever build anything if it can be confiscated from them. Um, you know, and we have a, a real dark history of, of uh, you know, the state confiscating people's property in South Africa. Um, and I think we need to say never again. Um, you know, um, you, you really ought not to, to interfere with those rights that are that are hard won. You know, and we've seen how the state has sort of you know, abused its powers. You think about uh, David Rajase, um, you know, uh, who has sort of not been given security of tenure for a farm that he you know has been operating for the last twenty years, and now he's had to fight tooth and nail against the state, um, you know, to have his property rights secured, um, and you know, finally has been able to to, you know, to get his title. Um, for that then to be stripped away from him again because, you know, of a change to our constitution would just be a, a real severe injustice. 
Yeah, I think there's a, there's a conversation to be had in that because I, I think throughout this lockdown, which which continues by the way, um, people often forget that we're still under lockdown. That there has been a, a major assault um, from a legal perspective and as a social, socio political perspective. There's actually been a major assault on people's life, liberty, and property. And often people forget that courts are an important tool in the sense that not just for any singular judgment in the in the moment, but also they set precedents. Um, you know, f- other groupings, for instance, who are now taking the state on will, will have the ability to look back on the cases that have gone on and have been fought and won by people and go, well, you know, here's a precedent that's been set. Um, how about we, we, we extend and we continue to err, if you will, on the side of freedom and liberty? Um, of course, I mean cases that are against the state. Do you maybe quickly talk to me about this? Um, not necessarily forecasting on other people's cases, but the issue of the importance of uh, people coming forward with issues and taking the state on in the courts. Because far too often we sort of assume that the state is, it, it is the courts in a way, or it is justice um, in the decisions that it makes. And people are fearful of coming forward. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we, we have a, you know, a strict separation of powers. Um, so, you know, the executive is separate from the legislature, which is separate from the judiciary. Um, and I think we have, you know, largely a proud history of a judiciary checking government power in South Africa. There have been times when, you know, the judiciary had sort of been um, captured, you know, during apartheid. There were definitely judges that, you know, were, were propping up a sinister system. Um, but, you know, and I think that's why we've sort of tried to have this strong judicial oversight in, in a modern South Africa. And, you know, judges really have played a, a pivotal role in checking the power of the executive. Um, and I think you're right that that base norm must be, you know, err on the side of freedom. Um, you know, that's that's kind of our our way of, of interpreting legislation is to say that, you know, we presume that people are free to do what they like. Um and then we read the regulations accordingly, you know, so you read them restrictively to presume in favor of freedom. Um, look, on this front, I mean, I think because we were dealing with a, a very unknown thing in COVID, it was unclear what, you know, in the early days, you know, what the mortality rate would be, um, how quickly it would spread, um, what measures were going to be reasonable. Um, you know, we saw the initial judgments coming out of the court um, being very, very pro-hard lockdown measures. Um and so when I approached the litigation that I ran for clients, it was bearing this precedent value in mind, as you point out. You know, we're not like, you know, in, in civilian systems like, like France, um, you know, a judge makes a decision, but it only is binding on those parties. In a common law system like, you know, the states and us, um, it affects, it creates a principle which affects future parties. So I wanted to ensure that we, hit things that were clear winners. Um, and so that's why we targeted what we did. You know, there were calls to kind of try and end the lockdown in Toto um, early on. And, you know, my feeling was you've got to be tactical about that. Mm. Um, and we we now have a judgment that doesn't quite say that, but, you know, is a big warning bell to government that when it produces regulations, it must produce regulations that are um, – Constitutional and rational. So that's the the judgment um, of De Beer by um, mm. Judge Davis, um, and it's a it's a really interesting meaty judgment. And I will say this, which is it's you know we're in this unusual time for uh, for courts, which is that firstly they're not able to operate under the under the way they normally do because they're having to run a lot of their hearings digitally. Um, almost all matters that are coming to court are urgent matters now. 
Um, so a lot of the kind of, you know, ordinary commercial matters that would have been heard, you know, that take, you know, years to kind of proceed through the courts, um, you know, often are kind of now put on pause. So, you know, if you look at, um, the amount of time available to Judge Davis to produce that judgment, you know, it is a very, very small amount of time. Um, mm. and it, it is, um, you know, it's something that I think gets to the core of, of government's obligations, which is that when you produce regulations, um, they are subject to administrative review. We have an act called um, PAJA, um, which which shows you under which circumstances regulations can be set aside. And, you know, he hones in on two. The one is uh, rationality, mm-hmm. which is the idea that there must be a rational connection between the regulation and the thing that you're trying to aim at, which in this case is stopping the spread of COVID. And he points out through a number of examples, um, regulations which don't bear that rational connection. So, for example, the ban on selling open-toed shoes. Um, there is no connection between that ban and stopping the spread of COVID. It is just irrational on its face. Um, we might think similarly about cigarettes. So mm-hmm. while I think it is the case that people who've been smoking for many years have done damage to their lungs, which means that if they get COVID, they are more likely to require hospitalization. It doesn't follow from that that banning cigarettes now will have any effect because it's the long-term use of cigarettes that cause the lung damage. If you stop people from smoking for two months, it's not clear that it'll have any health effect at all. Um, and it has these negative effects, which is that you now allow black market to prosper, um, you know, and which means that you know less taxes are coming to the state, um, which could be used for you know supporting hospitals and other endeavours. Um, and now you've got a criminal network that isn't only going to be you know selling legal cigarettes. I mean, so you know um, the illegal cigarette trade has been um, found internationally to be connected to funding other things like terrorist effects. So. You know, you don't, you really don't want criminal networks to prosper during this sort of time. Um, so the judge points out all these sort of irrational things. And then he also talks about, you know, the constitutionality of regulation. So, you know, a regulation must um, be constitutional. Um, and our Bill of Rights is still intact. You know, we declared a state of emergency. We haven't declared a state of emergency. We declared a, you know, a state of disaster, which means that all the rights in the Bill of Rights are there. Um, and, you know, if you're going to limit any of them, they have to be done through a section 36 analysis, which is basically that you have to, um, you have to be able to justify them in an open and democratic country. Um, and you have to go through a proportionality test. And he says, you know, government basically admitted that it didn't do this. Um, that it sort of took the view that, you know, um, it can, it can do what it likes. Um, and it didn't consider its constitutional obligations. And on that basis, he referred it back to the minister to go and redraft. You know, um, so he didn't go and write law. He didn't overstep his powers as a judge and become a legislature. He didn't mm-hmm. say, well, I'm going to tell you what the regulation is going to look like. He just said, these are the things you have to bear in mind when you draft regulations. So go back and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he suspended his declaration of invalidity for um, 14 court days. Uh, so it gives governments an opportunity to go and do that. Um, now, I gather the matter is on appeal. Um, and so that sort of suspends the judge's order. Um, but it's definitely a thing that you know the public ought to be you know keeping tabs on. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, um, can I just, sorry, uh, just comment just just on that specifically, and then uh, back to back to Sickly. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry. I, on I the cigarette ban. Uh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I must interject because we need to take <laughs> a nap break. Um, we actually actually must take a nap break. Um, how about when we get back from the break, we'll pick okay. up that question uh, from Sarah. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. 
Welcome back to the IRR show. We're in conversation with advocate uh, Mark Oppenheimer. Uh, sorry, you had a question you actually wanted to, to uh, level up, Mark, for the break. That re- to me, the indication of, of the sort of, of, of regulation making that, that was not in good faith came from Nkuzazana Dlamini Zuma herself because she relied on the sort of minority science, if I can put it that way, in terms of, of, of the, the ban on cigarettes. And somewhere along the line, it came out that that she was really more happy about the fact that people were having to give up smoking in this period. Um, now, surely, you know that that sort of thing that's thing that's so obvious that's been criticised indirectly in a, in a judgment like this calls for someone in her position in 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 the normal course, not so much in South Africa, but in the normal course to resign. Yes, and I see that there there is a, a call for her to resign. Um, AfriForum have put out a press statement saying that, you know, she has, um, you know, done a number of things that are unconstitutional and irrational, and that that is reason for her to resign. Um, I mean, I think, you know, she's angered the public in many ways, um, and I think we'll see a sort of crisis of legitimacy, you know, um, because, you know, you know, any crisis creates opportunities. Um, and they're going to be good actors and bad actors um, in these times. And I think we've seen, um, you know, some some really pernicious things come out. As you say, people sort of running, you know, agendas that have nothing to do with with stopping the spread of COVID. Um, now, I, I personally don't smoke. Uh, I don't like cigarettes. Um, I'd probably be happy if we woke up in a world in which no one smoked anymore. But that's very different um, from running your sort of moral agenda at a time. When you've got 11 million smokers in the country, you know, um, causing them, you know, enormous, I think, mental suffering when you deprive them of this in an already sort of difficult time. And you're doing it because you want to run a particular kind of thing that is disconnected from COVID. Um, and that's, that's really unfair. Uh, yeah. can, I, can I perhaps just, oh, sorry, exactly go ahead because I've just got one issue that probably comes afterwards. Yeah, no problem. I, I think I, I should have very, uh, a short question. Um, because I think you've laid it out quite aptly, Mark, the, the importance of, of, you know, citizens standing up for their rights and using the legal system. Because, again, I must stress this because it's so common. You know, you, you have a sense in this country where access to justice is seen as something that only, you know, the more well-to-do, the wealthier um, get to enjoy. In fact, your initial comment around um, how people look to corporate to take on some of these, uh, you know, asinine regulations, I must say. Um, was such a disappointment for people because the corporates just literally basically bailed on their responsibility to customers, in my view. Um, But I want to speak to you about the issue of access to justice because you mentioned in another comment, which actually got me worried, are we seeing the South African courts, just maybe as commentary on them now, just for a bit, are we seeing them sort of like shape up and and catch up with the use of technology? Um, Do you see them maybe setting up the infrastructure for something like this to to endure beyond even COVID, where, for example, uh, the practice of of shipping a a waiting prisoner to court in order for him to then face trial or whatever the case may be would actually substitute it for maybe even appearing in camera. I mean, would that not maybe speed up things? How have you guys as advocates found this current period um, with the use of technology in this, in, in this uh, the legal fraternity? I'll say, I'll say two things. So the first is to, I'll say two things. So the first is to talk about, as you say, um, citizens playing a role um, in litigation. So what's amazing about the DRSA case is that it was totally crowdfunded. 
um, that was average Joe's, you know, um, donating a hundred rand towards the cause, you know, um, and, you know, that, that wasn't paid for by some big corporate sponsor, you know, um, you know, the mandate was to do it for average South Africans. And, uh, you know, I think that's a very important litigation model, um, that people need to consider going forward. Um, because it's not clear that big business is going to stand up for, for the average Joe. Um, you know, the sort of usual line is that, you know, big businesses never found a government that is not happy to cozy up to. Um, mm. You know, it'll basically, you know, play ball um, regardless of whatever, you know, the, the regime believes, no matter how pernicious it is, um, because they want to kind of keep their government contracts going. Or they don't want to be um, whacked by government by, you know, being targeted. Um, on the second bit about tech and the courts, it's it's been a rocky road in a lot of ways. Um, what's interesting is that pre-COVID, um, um, the courts in Gauteng were trying to make moves to um, to modernize. Uh, and we introduced a system um, called case lines, where basically all matters can proceed digitally. Um, so all, all the all the papers become electronic papers, um, and that you can, you know, you can do your sort of transferring of documents instead of through a sheriff, you know, physically dropping off bundles of paper. That it can be done through a digital service, and that the proceedings would then run digitally. Um, and there was a lot of resistance to it. A lot of people don't, you know, lawyers are. By nature, quite conservative. Um, they don't like change. They um, are very hostile towards technology, um, and so it took quite a while. You had a few judges refusing to use um, case lines, and then suddenly there was no choice. You know, suddenly the only way that you could run a matter was through case lines and through you know digital hearings like uh, on Zoom and Microsoft Teams. And I don't think it was always easy, um, but you know that's the feeling that well, you know. Necessity is the mother of invention. We have to do this and we have to work out how to get on board quickly has meant that a lot of it does function quite well. Um, so I've had a digital hearing that worked very smoothly. Um, I think it's the kind of thing that will take some time people to get used to. Um, but uh, there's a lot to be said for it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the more courts embrace the power of technology, the better. I mean, one of the amazing things that you can do um, is there's a program called Otter, Um which live transcribes um, your conversations. Um, and so it basically uses a very sophisticated neural net. Um, it's done by a machine, and it is, uh, it's amazing. I'd used the service about a year ago, and it was kind of about 80% accurate. And I used it again last night, and I'd say it's 95% accurate. Mm. Um, and it makes it very easy to pick up the inaccuracy. So it gives you a piece of text, which it produces from an hour-long um, recording that I'd, that I'd done. In 20 minutes, it had my piece of text. Um, almost totally perfect, but then you can click on a word and hit play, and it'll play the audio for you as well. So if there's something that you can see it's gotten wrong, you can then very easily edit it, and then it learns from that. Um, and so it has that um, – Zoom has that offering for live transcription services, which is an incredible resource for lawyers. So if you're running a trial, you can have a running transcript um, which, you know, which is just enormously useful and would have been incredibly expensive otherwise. I mean, here is a service they charge now, I think, um, $10 a month. You know, transcription services would have been, you know, thousands of rands, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think tech is going to play a very important role for, for access to justice. That's actually extraordinary because I, I mean, back in the day when I, when, when I was an attorney, the pressure and the cost and the sheer discomfort of having to wait for a transcript to be, uh, to be produced uh, from the, the transcription services was uh, it, it just added a weight to everything you did in in a court and very often you were under pressure to produce it and you had no, you you had no control over the speed at which something would come out so it, it sounds like it, 
uh, it sounds absolutely wonderful, I have to say. Um, can I perhaps just um, ask you a view on something completely unrelated? It, it's just it's more about sort of touches on free speech and, and related issues, and that is with the with the death of George Floyd and the protests and worryingly the riots that have taken place in 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 consequence. There's been a demand not to try and inculcate non-racialism, but actually anti-racism. Could you just talk about the difference between the two and why, for my, for my mind, the latter is so scary? Yeah, sure. So non-racialism is the idea that we don't um, judge each other on the basis of the color of our skin. You know, we, we, we assess each other on the content of our characters. Um, now, there's a... Uh, there's a view that basically races are the kinds of things that are imagined by people. Um, you know, in the same way that we used to, um, you know, burn witches at the stake on the mistaken belief that they were witches, you know, we have, um, had prejudice against people on the mistaken belief that they belong to a particular race. And I think you can, you can be a non-racialist and be an anti-racist. Um, now, the the protests are interesting. I mean, my general view around free speech is I think people should be free to express their opinion, um, and that one important way of doing that can be through public assembly. Um, that's obviously a hell of a complicated during a pandemic, where your public mm-hmm. assembly can you know place other people's lives at risks. Um, so you know, there's there's definitely something to be to be factored in in that equation. Um, and the other one, as you say, maybe is that there's a a, a mounting pressure. To, for corporates to sort of signal a certain kind of position that they have. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes that's okay. I think it's, it's, people should be able to, you know, put pressure on, on, on people to sort of, um, you know, endorse their views. Um, but that's, you want that to be done in a rational manner. Um, and I think the mounting, uh, racialism we've seen at the moment is kind of worrying. I think, mm-hmm. you know, you, you wind up dividing people into different camps, um, and that we police how people are, are meant to behave based on, on the color of their skin. And I think that's hell of a dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there's good reason to stand up against police brutality. Um, I think yeah. police brutality is dangerous. And I think we've seen quite a lot of it in South Africa. You know, we've had, um, the army kill, um, Collins Causa, um, and then, uh, try and cover it up. Um, and we've had, you know, very little public discussion of that in South Africa. Um, and that's, that is kind of worrying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, I was about to say we've actually run out of time. And that's what happens when the conversation is legit. Having fun. Awesome. Absolutely. And I think we need to have Mark Oppenheimer back with us. Mark, I must say thank you very much for Absolutely. joining us on the IRR show. Uh, how do people reach you on your social media? Um, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, my so man. I, I, uh, I, I, um, basically sort of stay off of, um, social media, but if you are interested in some of the stuff that I do, I have a, a YouTube channel called Brain in a Vat, um, which is a philosophy discussion show. And, um, actually our next episode coming up is, um, on whether race exists. And we have, um, Sean Stanley, who's a professional philosopher, um, talking about that. Um, so if you are interested in some of the work that I do, um, check out um, Brandon Avat on YouTube. There you have it, Brandon Avat on YouTube, and you'll find Mark and all his um, views and his thoughts and uh, some of the interesting guests I hear that you're going to have on the show. Thank you very much, Mark, for that. After the break, we wrap up the show and we look at what you can expect from the Newsweek ahead. All right. Um, I thought it was Mark Oppenheimer, uh, advocate. Um, Sarah, your last thoughts? Very briefly. Um, 
No, it's actually wonderful to uh, to to hear him. I think it's really the. I, I can't even predict what this week is going to be about, but I think it's. I think we're largely going to be looking at the results of more court cases. I agree. Um, guys, remember you can find all our news, analysis, and opinion on our website, the Daily Friend, dailyfriend.co.za. That's www.dailyfriend.co.za. I'm Big Daily Liberty. I've been with Sara. This is the IOR show. We'll see you next week on Tuesday.